Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. That the Lord has granted you another day to come and hear his arguments. I was going to make a post this morning on my Facebook that gospel preaching is a declaration of God's argument. That's it. Gospel preaching is a declaration of God's argument as he has presented them in Christ Jesus. And may God help us in the understanding of his arguments, not the church's arguments, not people's arguments, but God's arguments. And once we understand his arguments, then we have repented. We are confessing. But the whole idea of confession is to be in accord, is to be in agreement with someone. That's what confession means. So when we confess Christ, it means we are in agreement with God about what he says about Christ and what Christ has done. That's true confession. Anyway, good morning again to one and all and... It's good to be gathered around the matter of the gospel. I pray that people have been following the teachings from the book of Romans because it's a very complicated book. It's a very dense book. You need to listen to the messages and understand what was said in the previous message because the way that Romans is and also the way that I teach I'm always weaving things. So you can't be listening to two messages, then disappear, come back to message number 15, disappear, come back to message number 22. It's not going to work. I will guarantee you that. It's not going to be useful. The best way is to follow the arguments because every message is preparing you for the next message. So with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing upon his word. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for your blessing this morning. On all these that you have gathered to hear from your word, may your spirit teach them as it teaches me. Lord, may we see our life, righteousness, holiness, and sufficiency in Christ and Christ alone. Be with us always. And we remember before you those of Christ who may be dealing with all kinds of issues of life, sickness, just general infirmities of the flesh, sin, all kinds of challenges, Lord, we pray that you keep them and continue to cause them to look to Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we are back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 27 to 30. We have been there before, but we had to go back because there's just a lot of detail to work through. Reading from the New King James Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, said, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law or by what principle? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? 
Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there's one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And that's the word of the Lord. Our second title, we have two titles, but essentially they're the same title. Where is Boston then? Where is Boston then? And number two, Boston excluded. Boston excluded. The children of men, human beings, love to boast about themselves. And that is the one thing that God hates. Why? For a million reasons. But fundamentally because he is God and we are not. And we do not cause anything. We do not cause the rain to fall. We don't cause the wind to blow. We don't cause anything. We are his creatures and yet we boast as if we are self-caused. Like we are self-determined, self-sustaining masters of our destiny. We are the world. <laughs> and the whole world revolves around our belly buttons. That's who we are. We think we are very important in the larger scheme of things. And God knows all that about his creation, thankfully. And he so designed salvation in such a way that there's no room for boasting. Why? Because of Isaiah 42. You can go there if you want. Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, I am the Lord that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved or carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God says, he will not give the honor due to his name and his works to another, not to Carved idols, which means anything that is not able to do what he does. An idol is anything to which power, glory, or honor is given or ascribed in the place of God. Some ascribe power to Mother Nature, others to animals and creeping things and yet others to money and themselves. Pride and self-righteousness. You hear people say, money is power. No, money is not power. Money is just a piece of paper. <laughs> money is not power. It's just a piece of paper. Christ is the wisdom and power of God. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Money is not the power unto salvation. 
because it gets eaten by inflation as we are now experiencing. It continues to buy less and less and less, and yet the life and righteousness of Christ in the gospel remains unchanged. This is how God is different from his creation. Isaiah 42 verse 9 again, he says, And new things I declare, before they spring forth I tell you of them. God is able to predict the future with 100% accuracy because the future is in him. God is the future because his existence is not determined by the movement of time. God is past, present, and future. God does not have a watch. <laughs> okay? He brackets the end from the beginning. Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He brackets all things in himself. It is he who created time and moves time for us. It is he who ordained and brings to pass all events that happen in time. And no idol can do that, whether human or not. Not an angel can do that. Thus, God says he will not share his glory with them. But what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? It is the weight or the sum or totality of his perfection. The Hebrew word is kabod. I believe it's K-A-B-O-D. It's speaking to the weight of his perfection. Now, how do you measure the weight of God's perfection? How do you do that? Is there a scale that is fitting where you're going to put God in and say, oh, see, this is how much it weighs. This is how God is determined to demonstrate his power, his glory. He has created things that he may demonstrate the perfection and weight of his glory. The creation reveals his glory. But even the creation itself does not do justice. It is not enough to show all that there is to know about the perfection and power of God. It still falls short. And every attribute of God is perfect and there's no equal. And all of his attributes are holy. They are set apart from any of those of his creation such that God can reproduce any of his creation. He can reproduce human beings, but it is impossible for God to reproduce himself and make from himself an exact copy. He cannot do that because there's only but one God, the eternal self-existing one. So Christ Jesus is not a carbon copy of God. Christ Jesus is not a carbon copy. 
He is not a printed version of God. He is not a copy. He is the original. The express image of God according to Hebrews chapter 1. In whom the fullness of the Godhead exists, dwells in bodily form. Christ Jesus is God. That is why perfect righteousness, which is an attribute of God alone, cannot be produced in the creature by giving up something. You can't give up watching a movie to have perfect holiness and righteousness. That's false teaching. Perfect righteousness can only be imputed, can only be legally reckoned to someone because it's not something that you can do. Something that you can be even. Because there's just none like him. And he has made his creation, made you and I to display, to demonstrate this truth about himself. Let's go to Revelation 4. Let's go to Revelation 4, starting from verse 9 to 11. Revelation 4, 9 to 11. Apostle John says from his vision. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders throw themselves to the ground before the one who sits on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they offer their crowns before his throne saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power since you created all things, or because you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Let us hear the testimony of verse 24 again from the elders, verse 11 again from the 24 elders. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power since you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. The Lord God is worthy. In other words, he has the merit, he has the value that makes him fit to receive adoration, glory and honor and power, not as these qualities or attributes being transferred, being transferred to him, but as an acknowledgement that he possesses them. When we are giving glory and power and honor to God, we are not actually giving these things to him. We are only acknowledging that he possesses them. He has them in himself. So God's glory does not increase. God's glory does not increase because God is immutable. He is unchangeable. It only increases to us 
as we grow in our appreciation of him. It does not increase for him. And the elders gave the reasons as to why they think God is worthy of praise. They said, since you created all things. No evolution there. <laughs> no evolution there. Since he created all things, God is worthy of praise because he created all things. And that means creation is 100% the work of God's own power, not of mother nature, of God's power and wisdom. And for that, he deserves honor and praise. And all things exist and were created because of his will. His will. Things exist because of his will. You have two hands and two eyes and hair and two feet and ten toes. Because of his will. You did not determine that. Thus, the created things cannot have a will that is free. Free to do what? People talk about their freedom and their will that is free. Free to do what? To go to the mall? To buy new shoes? No, that's not freedom. The creature can only do what God has established for it to do and to be. The creature can only do that which God has established for it to do and to be. God has built boundaries for everything. If both God and man have a free will, then it means that at one point, God is controlled by his creation. At one point. At some point, humans will do something that God was not expecting them to do. And at some point, because of that, God will have to take high blood pressure medication. If that is what is happening in this creation, God has to have a stack of pills, prescription drugs, for high blood pressure. At some point. God is going to get very frustrated if humans do not pull the party line and continue to agree with him. God is going to get very, very frustrated. Always wringing his hands that maybe Paul is going to come and decide to come to Jesus. Oh, I just hope he does it today. Maybe tomorrow. I'll just keep my fingers crossed. That it happens. That's the God that is being presented even this morning in a lot of churches. But hear this. Job 5, verse 12. Job 5, verse 12. This is what it says. He frustrates, that's God. He frustrates the plans of the crafty so that their hands cannot accomplish what they have planned. He frustrates the plans of the wise so that their hands do not accomplish what they had planned. 
Psalm 33 and 10. The Lord frustrates the decisions of the nations. Even the decisions of the nations. God frustrates them. He nullifies the plans of the peoples. And that is from the New English Translation here. From the New King James. The same verse, Psalm 33.10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Isaiah 14, 27. Isaiah 14, 27. Indeed, the Lord who commands armies has a plan. He has a plan. He has a purpose. God does not have plans. You and I have plans. We make plans for the day, for the year. God only has one plan, one purpose in Christ Jesus. Now hear what God says. Indeed, the Lord who commands armies has a plan. And who can possibly frustrate it? His hand is ready to strike and who can possibly stop it? The expected answer is no one. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, this is the new King James, for the same verse, Isaiah 14, 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul? In other words, who will cancel? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Again, the answer is no one. Job 42, verse 2. Job says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be frustrated. No purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And if God's purpose is your salvation, that purpose is not going to be frustrated by you. It's not going to happen. Anybody who's saying that does not know the God of the Bible. It cannot be frustrated. Because salvation is God's purpose. He has his name to it. His honor and glory is tied to your salvation. It's not going to be frustrated. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. God says, remember, if you have any functioning memory, remember what I accomplished in antiquity. In other words, remember the former things. Truly, I am God. I have no peer. I have no equal. I am God and there's none like me. Absolutely none like him. Verse 10, who announces the end from the beginning and reveals beforehand what has not yet occurred. And who says, my plan will be realized, my purpose will be accomplished 
I will accomplish what I desire. What he desires, he will do. What God desires to do, he will do. Who summons an eagle from the east, from a distant land, one who carries out my plan, whoever is doing whatever they're doing, they're carrying out God's purpose. Yes, I've decreed. Yes, I'll bring it to pass. I have formulated a plan. Yes, I'll carry it out. He will do it. And he is doing it. And he has done it. Christ has done it. So, knowing all that, about this God who cannot be frustrated by your will, by my will, by my stubbornness or your stubbornness, your stubbornness is part of the plan. It's part of the plan. What does your free will so-called do? Knowing this, is it really free to go against what God has purposed to do? If the answer is yes, then God has not taught people the truth. What is the point? The point is that this is the God that we are dealing with. He is accomplishing his sovereign will and purpose, even in salvation. And we desperately need to factor this into our understanding of the whole matter of the gospel, factor this into our own lives. This is the only way, legitimate way to interpret life. The only legitimate way to understand even the unseen realities. Because true reality is not in the physical. Ultimate reality is in the spiritual realm where God is because God is spirit and it is he who formed all things and sustains both the visible and the invisible. That's where reality is. So then the matter of truly understanding salvation is in the understanding of the true God. Because salvation is the revelation of God through Christ. That's the only way to know God. Salvation is the revelation of God through Christ. So salvation is not the end of things. Salvation is just a tool. It's just a way, it's a means for God to introduce his glory to his creation through the person of Christ. This is the big or the bigger picture of the matter. Salvation is not God reacting to your sin to what has become of his creation through the events of the garden. God does not react to things because he knows the end from the beginning. That's what he said in Isaiah. God, the true God of the Bible, has no medical aid emergency kit full of band-aids and rubbing alcohol and things like that. <laughs> to think that 
causes men and women to have a false sense of who they are, a high estimation of themselves, and a very low estimation of who God is. The gospel of God's free and sovereign grace comes to undo all that thinking and ascribes all matter of salvation to God alone. And that is the underlying thought in all of Paul's theology. God wants everyone to know that he does not save anyone because he owes them salvation. God does not owe anyone anything. Period. And that creation was not necessitated by a pressing need on his part to be fulfilled in his life. God had no particular need that he wanted to fulfill. Creation, salvation, as I said, is a tool for himself to reveal, to declare his glory, to say what? Look at me, how glorious I am. Look at me. Look at me. That's the point. That's the whole point of all these things is for God to say, look at me. I'm so glorious. And there's none like me. Now, worship me. Ascribe glory to my name because I'm worthy. Ascribe glory. That's what heaven is all about. Heaven is not about what John Hagee said when he will get to heaven. I hope he does. But the first thing that he will do is to kick Adam because of the sin of the garden. I had it myself. Get to heaven and the first thing that he do is start fighting. <laughs> no, there's no time for that. There's no time for that. Ascribe glory to him who sits on the throne because he is worthy to receive all power and honor and majesty and dominion. Yeah? So this whole matter of salvation is not random. It is God's eternal purpose in Christ to save some sinners to his glory. And these are matters that we have discussed before from the book of Ephesians and other places. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, Apostle Paul told us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption as sons in Christ according to the sovereign good pleasure of God, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in Christ, accepted in the beloved. Salvation to the praise of his glory. The praise of his grace. 
And Paul continued and said in Ephesians 1, 7 to 12, in him, and that is in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Forgiveness of sins is not according to your works. It's not according to your faithfulness. It's not according to your repentance. It's not according to your tears. It's not because of your running or your effort. But it's according to the riches of his grace. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Which means God is not going to have second thoughts about your salvation. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. All matters of salvation were purposed in God himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In the fullness of times, everything is going to be gathered together in Christ because in Christ all things hold. All things consist. Christ holds all things by the word of his power. That's the bigger picture. In him, verse 11, also we have obtained, obtained an inheritance we possess. Not that we shall obtain, no, we already obtained. We have it. We possess it. An inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works everything according to the counsel of his own will, which means God does not consult anyone about anything especially the matter of salvation. He doesn't ask you if you think it's a good idea to come to heaven. No, he does not. Because you would say no 100% of the time. But we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Okay. So, if our interpretation of the gospel leaves us Without the praise of his glory alone, then we are not telling the truth on Christ. So all this matter of conditioning of salvation, conditioning of eternal matters on the sinner doing this or not doing that is a way to deny God's eternal truth about his person about his purpose and his glory. His person, his purpose, and his glory. That's what drives everything. His purpose, his person, and his glory. So with that understanding, this is what God has done. God has seen to it 
God has seen to it that both Jew and Gentile are under sin for the sake of the purpose, for the sake of the glory, both Jew and Gentile have to be under sin. Anybody who does not know this does not know what they're talking about. Sin cannot and could not exist apart from God. Because nothing exists apart from him. If something exists, it's part of his purpose. As Romans 11.36 says, for of him, for of him, for of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. For of him, God is the first cause of all things. And through him means he empowers all things. And to him means Everything is to his glory. So all men are under sin by God's decree and purpose. Because if God did not want to create a people who could not sin, he would have done so. He could have done so. He was not lacking in power or materials to use. God did not have supply chain issues because of COVID-19 or the war in Ukraine. That does not get in the way of anything. So God has said in Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Paul said, now we know many people cannot say that, unfortunately, about the law because many do not know the purpose of the law. But Paul says, we know. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, said the function of the law was to stop men and women's mouth from boasting. How? By making them all guilty. See, cause and effect. The law stops us from boasting through sin. Sin and law are a couple. They work together always to shut us up by bringing sin Death and condemnation. Whenever you mix law and you, that always results in death. That always results in condemnation. Sister Debbie and the Lord, you're going to have sin, death, and condemnation 100% of the time. So God used the law not to cause men and women to be righteous. Hear me, someone but to prove that they were sinners. The law is for proving that you are a sinner. The law is for proving that you cannot be entitled 
to God's inheritance by your own doing. To prove that men and women, as the creation of the dust, could never measure up to the standard that is God. That men and women could never work good enough, long enough, to earn spiritual blessings. And for us to understand the matter, God brought in the law to teach this reality as the schoolmaster by first shutting us up under sin and making us guilty. And God does not apologize for that. Because whenever you hear preachers and some professing Christians talk about sin, they always try to clean God out of it. But the moment that you do that, you already have an idol. That's not the God of the Bible. Sin is part of the purpose of God. It's a tool in the revelation of Christ Jesus. It's a tool in the revelation of the cross. It's a tool in the revelation of the righteousness of God. It's a tool. Sin is a tool in God's hands through the law. Someone will say, but how could a loving God do something like that? (laughs) Because God's chief motivation in all things is his name, is his glory, and he will use whatever he wants to that end. Everything is in service to his glory, And so the law condemns and leaves sinners helpless because sin is a transgression of the law. Sin is not having a share in righteousness as we learned last week. Sin is not having a share in righteousness. Being born in Adam means Naturally, we have zero investment in righteousness. (laughs) Your shareholding certificate has zero shares when it comes to righteousness. Zero. And you're not progressing, people. You are not progressing. Not in the righteousness in which the perfection of God is revealed. No, you're not progressing. There's no progressing in this. Okay? Sin and law are thus God's tools to bring despair to all men and women because life and righteousness are only attached to perfection, which thing none is able to do. That is why the lawyer who came to Jesus in Luke 10 and said, Well, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Had the conversation of the Good Samaritan. He wanted to do something to inherit eternal life. The rich young ruler came to Jesus with the same question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's nothing that you can do to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is freely given. Eternal life is a gift 
that is given by God's grace and mercy. You can't do anything. If you believe the gospel, it's because God has given it to you. That's how it works. You did not cause it. Not by reading the Bible. There are people who preach the gospel. No, sorry. People who read the Bible, who are professors of Hebrew and Greek in a lot of the seminaries who do not believe the gospel. And yet they are very fluent in those things. And yet eternal life they do not possess because it's freely given. Okay? So in this state, the human condition, the human spiritual condition, the law cannot help you and I. The law, as I said, was not given to make people better, but to show them that they are in a very bad situation in respect of their relationship with God. And so the Jews had been mistaken and were ignorant to think that they could use the law to establish their own righteousness before God, which is what Paul is going to talk to in Romans 10. Yeah? So something had to happen and happen by God if there should be any hope for anyone. And that backdrop opened the next stage in the revelation of God's work. Paul says, Romans 3, 21 to 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, has been made manifest. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified, they are declared to be righteous, they are declared to be possessing eternal blessings freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So a righteousness had to come. A righteousness had to be revealed. You cannot do righteousness. Righteousness is revealed to you. Come by way of God. And it is called the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of an angel, but the righteousness of God. And this righteousness was through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. His obedience for those who believe in him. Those who are holy and chosen of God by his grace. So the solution to man's conundrum, to all our problems with God, is the righteousness of God. That's the only solution there is for your sin. The only solution there is to the law. 
It is the righteousness of God. Only the righteousness of God answers for you to the satisfaction of God. 100% of the time. And in all of eternity. Only this righteousness. The righteousness of God. And this righteousness is apart from what you do and you could do. It has nothing to do with your obedience. And that, of course, rubs many people the wrong way. But that is the matter that God is speaking about. The righteousness of God. Is that righteousness that answers all that God has determined to show his creation for the sake of his glory. And that righteousness is by the doing of Jesus, not of Muhammad. This is where all religions are shown to be false. It doesn't matter the piety that they show. It doesn't matter the good works that they may do in this world. Their single question is, what righteousness are they promoting? What is that which holds that religion? Is it the righteousness of God or not? This Christ, this gospel, is about the faithfulness of Christ, his righteousness on behalf of his people. But this righteousness also shows itself in the condemnation of the reprobates. God is demonstrating his righteousness even in condemnation. Okay? And to any who should be saved and shall be saved and has been saved, this righteousness is accessed only by or through faith. And that is a very purposeful distinction that Paul is making. He's making a very clear and purposeful contrast and saying category A, category A. Romans 1 citizens are in the flesh and are under sin. That's you and me. The moralist in Romans 2 is also in the flesh. In spite of their high morals, they also are under sin. But not only they, the Jew also, under the law, still in the flesh, and still under sin, all hopeless and condemned, if left to themselves in this state. So that's category A. Everyone is in the flesh naturally and hopeless and condemned. That's the end of story. But there's a category B. There's a category B. And Paul comes and speaks of a different righteousness. A righteousness that is apart from the law. Righteousness apart from your flesh. Apart from human works. Apart from human goodness. He says, it is God's righteousness. And it is by Christ. It is 
the righteousness of another as he stands as the substitute for his people. And it is by his doing alone. And it is to us by faith. So category B is lazy boy theology. <laughs> lazy boy theology. Which means faith is in the category of Christ's righteousness. Not in the category of the law. Law and faith are not in the same group. Law and faith are not in the same group. Once you do that, you are making a mess of everything. And you have veered off from the truth. That's why we have the book of Galatians. Because the Jews were trying to mix category A and B. Law and faith. And Paul says, no. So I'm going to work. <laughs> and this righteousness, as scandalous as it sounds, was transacted on legitimate grounds. God was just as he justified his people freely. God honored his own justice in having Christ standing in the place of his elect. And God was freely able to justify his people because of that. So Christ is the only one who matters. What Christ did alone is what decides eternity and nothing else does. What Christ did alone is what decides eternity for you and I. What Christ did is what God uses to determine whether one is fit for heaven or not. God does not write a check about salvation that does not have the name of Christ on it. Because the righteousness of Christ is the only legal tender to transact the matter of salvation. In the United States, the US dollar is the legal tender to make all your payments and transactions. Okay? Anyone who possesses the work of Christ, which God freely imputes, is said to be righteous by God. That's what righteousness means. It means to possess the work of Christ. That's the only way to be declared as righteous by God. Faith evidences your possession of the work of Christ. It does not cause it. It evidences that you possess the righteousness. Okay? So we shall understand God's mind, his truth, and be at peace to the extent that we comprehend Christ. 
We have to understand Christ. We have to understand Christ because Christ is the key. Only Christ opens the understanding of everything. Apart from Christ, you cannot understand anything. That is why preachers and people who make salvation about your doing are very dangerous and very suspicious. They are dangerous to you. Okay? So knowing all that about salvation, about God's glory, about God's purpose, Paul says in Romans 3, 27 to 30, where is Boston there? <laughs> That's where we're headed. That's why it took us an hour to get here. To answer just that question. Where is Boston then? On what grounds are you going to stand before God and Boston? Remember, Paul has said this to the Jews in chapter 2 of Romans 17. From chapter 2, verse 17 to 20. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, Paul is saying the Jew does and did boast in their law-keeping. And they had confidence in the flesh, as Paul said of himself in Philippians 3. And Paul says the gospel of God's grace undoes or removes all manner of boasting. First, it comes and condemns all men and women as sinners. Secondly, it Conditions salvation on something that men and women are not able to do. And this was God's purpose. So to the Jew first, where is boasting? And the expected answer is nothing to boast about. Nothing. So boasting is excluded. Then Paul asks and says, by what law? By what principle? How do we remove boasting from people? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Works do not remove boasting. They build boasting. They build confidence in the flesh. The Holy Spirit says, works do not remove boasting because works are the foundation and fuel for human works. Yet many want to throw away this understanding so that they can smuggle works back in the matter of salvation. Human works don't cause salvation. It doesn't matter how people want to interpret the book of James. Human works cannot and do not cause salvation. Because they are not God's righteousness. Isaiah, I believe 64, somewhere, 
God says, our best works of righteousness are like a filthy rag. Our best works. Our best. They're a filthy rag. So, boasting is removed. How? By the principle of faith. But how so? Because faith looks to God's grace. To God's grace alone for salvation. And says, it is good enough. Faith means looking and standing in that righteousness that God has revealed through Christ. Faith means believing that the law cannot help a sinner. That's faith. If one thinks the law helps a sinner, then they still do not have faith. The Jew was causing Jesus trouble because they thought there was still life and righteousness in their law-keeping. They did not have faith. Because the law is not of faith. Paul said that. The law is not of faith. Only the gospel is of faith. So faith means looking to the redemption. To the redemption price that Jesus paid as enough and as the only basis for God to grant you eternal life, forgiveness of sin, righteousness, his inheritance. It's about the redemption price that Christ paid. Verse 28. Therefore, we conclude. <laughs> Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So, in that conversation of law and works versus grace and faith, pay attention to that categorization of things. Law and works, hopelessness, versus grace and faith, salvation. God says, a man is justified by faith as opposed to the deeds of the law. And Paul says, therefore, therefore, and that means in light of all the things that have been discussed, considering all that we have discussed from chapter 1 to this very verse. We were building up to this. Our conclusion is that a man is declared to be righteous by God by simply believing apart from anything that they have done and will ever do. So faith means something that you did not do or cause. That's what faith means. Faith is the shorthand for Christ 
Jesus. Ultimately, that's what faith means. That's the shorthand to say Christ Jesus. Because faith is an acknowledgement of God's work through Christ. Because it is not the mere act of believing that causes justification, but the redemption that is in Christ. This is the conclusion of true religion, justification apart from human works. And this conclusion has long been gone from the testimony of many so-called preachers of the gospel and professing Christians. And what many people call gospel is just fruit inspection. God is the vine dresser and the owner of the vineyard. This is John 15 teaching. He knows what fruit to produce and in what season in his people. He determines the fruitfulness. He determines the season of that fruitfulness. He did not call us to be fruit inspectors, but to an obedience of faith or of the faith that justifies. The faith that rests in the faithfulness of Christ. Romans 3.29, Paul says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul is saying, since God is the God of all humanity, in that he created all men, of both the Jew and the Gentiles, he does not have a separate way of justifying people depending on their people group, depending on their ethnicity or language or whatever. In other words, the Jews are not and were not justified by the law. There are some people who say that. The Jews were not justified by the law. And then the, Jew, the Gentiles justified by faith. That's false teaching. Rather, the singularity of God, the fact that God is one, means he deals with all men the same way. That's the point that Paul is driving it. The circumcised in the flesh, that is the Jew, will be justified by faith. And so shall the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. It is the one and same transaction that God uses to this very end. God only justifies one way, through Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So faith removes all boasting because faith looks to what God has done in Christ. 
And God has taught this matter over and over in the Bible. In the book of Judges, Gideon was chosen of God to lead Israel against the Midianites. The Midianites were thorn in the flesh for Israel. And the Midianites represented the testimony of sin and its judgment against God's people, Israel. And this is what happened at the selection of the man to go with Gideon to fight and defeat the Midianites. Judges 7. Let's go to Judges 7. And we just do two verses. I didn't want to get bogged down into the details. But I, we actually do have a full message on that, if you look for it. Judges 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, that is Grandpa, <laughs> and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh, in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. What did God say? God said, Gideon's military was too big. And because of that, he could not, God could not and would not give victory to Israel over the Midianites. But why? God gave the reason. Because Israel would claim glory for itself against God and saying, my own hand has saved me. My own free will has saved me. I chose, I decided, I fought, I prayed, I rededicated my life to Jesus. My, Look at me, I'm such a faithful Christian. I did it. <laughs> my own hand has done it. My own hand has saved me. And God says, no, no way. He was not going to save anyone by having them taking part in their own work of redemption. Because they would boss against him, as is happening in many so-called gospels. As I said, free will, salvation is men and women boasting against God and saying they are saved and they will make it into God's glory because of a decision that they made. And by that, they are denying everything that God has said about men and women, about their sin, about their inability, about Jesus saying you must be born again to see, to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah? About God saying it is not of him who runs or wills, but of God who shows mercy. 
about his glory, his purpose, about his grace and mercy. So free will gospel is saying we went in against our enemies. We went in in our multitudes, in the multitude of our strength. And we conquered the Midianites. We conquered the Philistines. God only helped us, but we did our part. So we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2 and say, see, it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, and I'm working it out. Now, Philippians 2 is not talking about the causing of salvation, but the expression of salvation. It is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure that is more on the application of salvation, not the causation of salvation. God denies that testimony of you and I going to war in our multitudes and conquering the Midianites. He says, no, it's not going to happen. You're going to have to find some men who can lap with their tongues like a dog. Yeah? And I think, if you keep reading, you're going to find out that Gideon only went to war with just 300 men. And even with that, they didn't do much. Okay? It's a wonderful gospel testimony. And yet Paul says, all that is boasting. Boasting is a real common thread that you find in the theology of Paul. Because if you have understood grace and all the elements of grace and salvation, then that has to take away all manner of boasting, especially in regard to salvation. Here, First Corinthians 1 First Corinthians 1, from 26 to 31. And you know the issues that were in the Corinthian church. There's a lot of issues in the Corinthian church. A lot of commotion, a lot of boasting, contentions, divisions. I am of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. Yeah. So Paul uses this doctrine of election to set things straight for everyone. To move all manner of boasting. He says from verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, for you see your calling, consider your calling, brethren. Consider your calling. Think about it. For a minute, think about how you came to Christ if you have any understanding, that not many wise according to the flesh, you don't see a lot of professors of learning, doctors of learning, science, technology, who are Christians, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You don't see the Governor of Ohio sitting here listening to the message with us. <laughs> Not many mighty and noble are called. So he does the calling. 
But God has chosen, verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So election was done in such a way that the crowd of people that you find in the body of Christ are nobodies. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying. That no flesh shall glory in his presence. So, this is what God did. Because no flesh shall boast. How then are they going to come to him? They want to come to him with what? Since they are nobodies, how then do you come? Verse 30. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> but of his doing, you are in Christ who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, that is holiness, and redemption. So Christ has become all these things. He is all these things for a reason. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He who boasts, let them boast in the Lord. So Christ has become all things so that none should boast. And yet we are always catching flack when all we declare is Christ. Come and talk about Christ and grace alone. And people say, oh, you antinomian. That's the charge. Oh, you can't just be talking about Jesus. What am I supposed to be talking about? Because he is all. Christ is all. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved. And that not of yourselves. Even the faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. <laughs> so God really is serious about this matter of boasting. Galatians chapter 6, 13 to 15. Galatians chapter 6, 13 to 15. Paul says, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Not even those who claim to keep the law are keeping the law. Not even those who are claiming to keep the law here and now are keeping the law. None is keeping the law. Even Jesus said it. None of you keeps the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They desire to keep you under the law so that they can boast in your flesh because misery loves company. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me 
and I to the world. The world that you've been crucified to is not watching movies. That's a spiritual category. Is the category A. The category A that we talked about. The flesh, sin, death, condemnation, the law. That is what characterizes the world. And those who are in Christ have been crucified to all those things. So the cross is the only difference maker. Only the cross made the transaction, made the transition. So Paul says, if I should boast, I only boast in that which caused me to be righteous. And that's the cross of Christ. Okay? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. In Christ, Paul is saying, being a Gentile means nothing. Claiming that you keep the law means nothing. But a new creation. So the new creation is what Christ accomplished. Okay? That's a new creation. Second Corinthians 12. Thorn in the flesh removes boasting. Second Corinthians chapter 12. We know the testimony of Apostle Paul about his testimony when he was caught up in the third heavens where he saw things that he said were not even lawful to talk about. Extraordinary revelations that he could not even talk about. And then he says, verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, lest I just be going about talking about it like, man, look at me. Man, I can't tell you, oh man, what I saw. What I saw. <laughs> Paul says, no. Christ did not want Paul to come in the power of those revelations. Christ wanted Paul to come in weakness that the power of God in salvation may be shown. So a thorn in the flesh was given to me by who? By Christ, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Christ used a messenger of Satan because Satan and his minions and this messenger belong to Christ. They are his. These are his tools. Okay? Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Three times I asked the Lord to remove this thing. I said, Lord, can you take away this infirmity from me? I believe it was causing pain. It definitely was not demon possession because Paul could not be possessed having the Holy Spirit in him. But there was something that God was doing causing trouble, in pain to Paul. And this was the Lord's response to Paul. Well, I did not send that messenger. I think the devil did it. 
<laughs> no, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. My power is sufficient for you. Jesus is saying, he, Christ, is sufficient. Because grace is not some empty bag. Grace is not an empty bag. Grace means Christ himself doing and keeping and providing and sustaining. My grace my power is sufficient for you even in your weakness. Therefore, Paul concludes, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities, knowing this, that my infirmities are there for Christ to show his power, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My sin is there that the power of God in salvation may be shown to me. Therefore, verse 10, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong by his power. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying God throws thorns and darts to his people, in his people, so that he may remove Boston. Even if it means he uses the devil, that's what he does. That's high sovereignty. God will use sin to remove boasting. So when you see a brother or sister falling into sin, struggling with sin, do not think that they've lost salvation. <laughs> As many people are apt to say or think, it may just be God throwing darts at them to remove boasting of self-righteousness. Oh, you can tell. I can tell. I can tell that this person has not yet to meet with the God of the Bible. They are yet to meet, to encounter the true God of the Bible because the God of the Bible will show you that you are not a righteous person. Once you know that, you can only boast of his grace. God has his way to show his people, to keep them weak. And it depends where you are. It could be physical pain. It could be a temptation that won't go away. It's all weakness. It's to keep you looking to Jesus. No boast. That's, the, that's how this thing works. And people say, oh, you're not progressing in righteousness, so you have to start wondering if you're saved. No, God is pulling your strings and showing you that you cannot be righteous by yourself. Here, Paul, again, about confidence in the flesh and suffering and boasting. 
confidence in the flesh goes against God. God does not like that. But it's pride. It's self-righteousness. Second Corinthians 1, starting from 8. Second Corinthians 1, starting from verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware or to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Paul says we experienced such a burden in Asia that we despaired of life itself. We just wished that we would die. We wanted death to be our way of escape. And yet, that burden was coming from God himself. Hear this. Verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death? God delivered us from so great a death by the death of Christ. Salvation. That's the first deliverance. And does deliver us because he delivered us from such great a death by Christ. He does deliver us here and now in our present circumstances. Deliver us from things that he imposed on us. In whom we trust. That he will still deliver us. It's one of the most important statements in the New Testament. I wish to do a full message on that. There's the past, present, and future aspect of salvation and God's faithfulness in all of that. God delivered us. He will yet deliver us even in our present circumstances. And he will for the things that are yet to come, for the suffering that is yet to come, for the pain that is yet to come, he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So God brings trouble even to his people so that his people pray for each other, that when God delivers, yeah, he may be praised for delivering us from things that he caused. <laughs> this God of the Bible, people don't know. You're not going to hear this from a lot of preachers. They can't tell you this. He is the one behind it all. That many thanks may be given to him for causing a salvation from something that he caused himself. So the whole matter of salvation from sin and death ultimately is coming by God that praise and honor may be given him for our salvation. He is causing it. Okay? So suffering, pain, 
in this flesh is so that we should not trust in ourselves and our little economies of righteousness and self-sufficiency, but in God. It's not because you don't have enough faith. You're not struggling with sin and temptation because you don't have enough faith. It's for you to really appreciate the matter of grace, the sufficiency of Christ, the salvation by grace is so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Sin is so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. The law is so that we should not have confidence in the flesh, but in God's righteousness in Christ. Okay? Conclusion. Sin and law remove all manner of boasting because they leave all men helplessly condemned and this was by God's design or doing or purpose. Sin was not the devil's plan the devil is he who is God's plan. See the distinction. The devil is God's devil to work out the details of God's sovereign purpose in Christ to do God's bidding so that God may accomplish his purpose to his glory so the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God that is through the cross removes all manner of boasting. Because this is the righteousness that God freely imputes to sinners without cause that is freely, without any conditions attached to your performance. So by the Holy Spirit, we are made to know and understand that faith in the gospel is the only principle that removes boasting. All of boasting. Because all who come to God come on the righteousness of another, which is the whole essence of gospel faith the righteousness of another. Election, according to Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, removes all men of boasting because election is based on grace and not merit. The cross of Christ, as I said, removes all boasting because it is the only basis that God uses to declare you as righteous. And Christ has been made to us who believe us, the elect, the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, and redemption so that none would boast. So be careful of what you are saying about God, what you are hearing 
from people saying about God. Because many, even though they profess to be Christians, are still boasting. Their whole theology is founded on human boasting. But God will not take it. God will not take the testimony. He says this in Jeremiah 9.12, and that will be the last word from me. Jeremiah 9.12. If people want to boast, they should boast about this. They should boast that they understand and know me. They should boast that they understand and know me. They should boast that they know and understand that I, the Lord, act out of faithfulness. I, the Lord, act out of grace. Fairness and justice in the earth. And that I desire people to do these things. If anybody should boast, they should know him. They should know Christ as God has revealed him. That's God's message. Amen. We are done. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again for these many words that you've given us about the matter of, of boasting. Why we should not boast. And if we should boast, by what principle we are supposed to boast? We could not boast in the flesh. We could not glory in ourselves, but in Christ, in Christ alone. Boast in his righteousness alone, in his cross alone. Boast in your grace alone. Boast that you alone are the Lord and you have declared these things, things that have happened before they even happened. Because you are no idol. You are not like men. You are not like anything that we have known or seen. We thank you, Lord, for all this that you gathered around this message this morning. May you bless them evermore, continue to open their eyes and ears, to hear and understand this gospel. We pray for all those of Christ's elect who are yet to come to the knowledge of the truth, that they may be drawn by the Holy Spirit, drawn by the preaching of this gospel. Lord, we honor you. We thank you. Keep your people as they go in and out wherever they are. Encourage them, strengthen them, the flesh and the bones that are weak. Even those that are being shown that they are weak, Lord, do not forget to show mercy to them. We honor you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. Bye-bye. See you next week, the Lord willing.